0: As we recognize the authority of God's word over our lives, would you please stand as I read God's word? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is God's Word. You may be seated.
1: Think back and remember running laps in junior high gym class. For some of us, that's remembering back longer than others, but if I can do it, you probably can too. Of course, there were some good runners in the gym class, and you can picture them kind of whipping around the corners and just zooming around the gym. Uh, That wasn't me. But there was always another group of runners in the class who didn't want to be running at all. They hated running, and the only thing that kept them actually running were the threats of the gym teacher who in my case uh, would stand like a drill sergeant in the middle of the gym and rotate constantly to make sure no one defied his orders to keep running. The result of this is a patch of boys, we had segregated gym class when I was growing up, a patch of boys whose arms hung limply at their sides and instead of having any bounce in their step They seemed to be able to run while never actually straightening their legs. So it looked more like a perpetual fall than actually running. I may have been in that group sometimes. The only thing that kept those boys moving was the threat of the gym teacher, and all they could long for was the blow of the whistle that would allow them to stop, which may have sped them up when they started walking again. that's what I pictured when I read verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In the verses leading up to our passage, the author has challenged his readers to run with endurance the race that is set before us. But not everyone he was writing to was running well. Some were dragging their feet, arms hanging limply at their sides. But our author, but to every, not everyone he was writing to was running well. I read that. I lost my place. There we go. Sorry. But our author, wanting them to be able to run well and unencumbered, addresses two issues for their consideration. First, the need to regard the discipline of the Lord as being for their good, and second, how to go about making straight paths for their feet. So this morning, I want to look at those two things. What does it look like to regard the discipline of the Lord as being for our good? And second, how to make a straight path for our feet? We'll start with this issue of discipline. When we hear the idea of discipline, most of us may quickly think of corrective punishment. Any good parent will discipline their child when they do the wrong thing. We parents do that out of love for our child. The Lord is the same way with his children. Verse 6 makes that very clear. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And that aspect of discipline is absolutely a part of what our passage is talking about this morning. God does bring discipline in the form of corrective punishment into our lives to teach us the way we should go and the way we shouldn't go. And we need to receive that discipline as God's love for us. What might that discipline look like? It doesn't have to look supernatural. I think sometimes we think it's got to be this amazing big kind of supernatural sort of thing, but it doesn't have to. I think a lot of the way the Lord brings discipline in our lives often looks pretty natural. If you cheat on your taxes and you get audited, that totally could be the Lord's discipline. The goal of such discipline in the believer's life is not to harm them, but it's to help them. See, it's to invite them to repent, to change their course of action away from sin and toward his holiness. See, Jesus died on the cross for tax evasion, right? Right? Make no mistake, God is not likely to sit idly by while his child continues and persists in sin. Now, certainly, God has more at his disposal than IRS agents, so it could be something more dramatic and supernatural than that that God might use to invite repentance when he wants to bring us an awareness of sin. An IRS audit, a traffic ticket, a flooded basement, a popped tire or any other negative circumstance in our lives could be the Lord's corrective discipline in our lives. They might also simply be an audit, a ticket, a nail on a tire, or a leaky foundation. So how do you know? I think it's hard. But I'd suggest that we should always be examining our hearts for sin and inviting God to reveal the ugliness contained within. So if hardship enters your life, it's natural and it's appropriate to examine your heart, but I'd say we should be doing that as a regular habit anyway. I choose to make that a part of my Sunday worship experience before I come to the communion table, to invite the Lord to reveal sin in my heart. And of course, anytime we receive conviction of sin, we need to repent and deal with that sin. But corrective discipline is not the entirety of what our passage is pointing towards. We also need to think about discipline the way we think of military discipline or the way an athlete puts their body under discipline. Training is a suitable synonym. In fact, verse 11 of our passage uses that word training. And the word there is gymnasia. It's where we get the word gymnasium. It's it's like athletic training. As a parent... There are times that I don't give something right away when it's been asked for. Not because I couldn't give it right away or won't eventually give it, but there's a good that I want to produce in the lives of my children, and giving them exactly what they want, exactly when they want it, won't help produce patience. And so sometimes I make them wait. Now, girls... That's not the majority of the time I make you wait for things, so don't start assuming that's always why you have to wait for things. But sometimes it's simply done for their ultimate good, even though it's not what they want in the moment. So an IRS audit that isn't brought on as corrective measures to awaken me to sin may still be a method God might use as discipline in my life. Discipline in the sense that God might use it to build my character, it should come as no surprise to us that God would use difficult circumstances in our lives to produce good character. We find God's promise of this in Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. All things includes both the good things and the bad things. So God is going to use those things to produce good things in us or through us. Our natural tendency is to resist hardship rather than embrace it. But our passage today would invite us to actually lean into those difficult parts of life. We need to see them as opportunities to grow and to develop the kind of character that will ultimately carry us across the finish line of faith. Verse 11 highlights our resistance to discipline. It says, For the moment, All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Because we love pleasant more than we love pain, we will naturally always resist discipline unless we can somehow see further ahead to the greater good that that discipline will do for us. That's the job of every coach, Right? They need to push their team during practice through the pain because of the hope of victory. That's what our passage is trying to do for us. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. By submitting to his discipline and training, the Lord will produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. Yes, I want that. And I think you do too. Now, we might need to remind ourselves or we might need to remind each other of that in the midst of the pain of training, that becoming more like Jesus is really worth it. But it is, even if we forget. Now, as we've seen over the past six months or so, as we've been in Hebrews, the biggest theme of the book is that Jesus is better. The second biggest theme that we've seen is to not turn away, this need, this call to endure to the end. And both of those themes are found in our passage, specifically even in verses three and four, where we see this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The recipients of this letter, like Jesus, have been enduring hostility. They're facing external pressure to turn away from the gospel, and that's come in the form of persecution. That sin, that tendency to turn away, which this letter repeatedly warns against, would make their lives way easier. If they turn away from Jesus, the persecution would stop. Right? If you're being persecuted for being a Christ follower, you can end the persecution by not being a Christ follower anymore. And so far, they are resisting that temptation to turn away. but They haven't yet had to choose death over turning away. It hasn't gotten to the point of shedding blood. And the author is saying that they will be strengthened by considering Jesus, who endured the cross. He did, in fact, resist to the point of shedding blood. Going all the way back to verse 2, which we didn't cover this morning, we see that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. The agony of the cross was worth it to him because because of what it accomplished and secured for him. I want to be really clear. Jesus willingly endured the cross because the salvation it secured for us was a joy for him. That's amazing. And our passage reminds us to consider him so that we don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider his goodness. Consider his kindness. Consider his faithfulness. His perfection. His willingness to endure suffering. His willingness to take on flesh. He is better than the angels and the Torah because he is God's word in the flesh. He is better than Moses and the promised land because he gives us a hope for a new creation and a perfect rest. He's better than the Aaronic priests and Melchizedek because he is our eternal priest. He made a better covenant because he made a better sacrifice in every way. And at every turn, Jesus is better. Therefore, as you consider him, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Earlier I said I wanted to cover two things. The first was to not to regard the discipline of the Lord as being for our good, And the second is to make straight paths for their feet. I want to turn to that second part now. One critical, important part of running a good race is picking a good path to run on. And verses 14 through 17 lay out some practical advice for what it means to make a straight path. I want to take the remaining portion of my time uh, to comment on these following instructions that he lays out, giving some plain ethical teaching for us. I want to talk about those instructions and the implications they have for us. The first instruction that we're given is to strive for peace with everyone. Now remember, they're facing persecution. So everyone isn't just their friends. It's not just their neighbor who doesn't cut their grass as often as they ought to. They're being persecuted, and everyone includes they're persecutors. It's also important to recognize that it doesn't say be at peace with everyone. It says strive for peace with everyone. And that's important. <laughs> it reminds us of Romans 12.18, which makes that point even clearer. There we read, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that's very helpful because being faithful to God's other commands in the scripture may make it impossible to live at peace with everyone. For example, in our day, holding to a biblical position about sexuality is inherently going to make it unlikely that you're going to be able to live at peace with everyone because they won't choose to live at peace with you. And that doesn't mean I go out looking for a fight No, I want to love people and live at peace with them, so I need to be kind and loving and patient and self-controlled even when someone disagrees with me. Part of the problem in our current culture is this belief that if I disagree with any position you hold, that we can't be friends anymore. If you follow the news, we're not just not friends, we're not even civil to people we disagree with. It doesn't have to be that way. And it wasn't always that way. But that lack of civility and that lack of peace can't come from us. Okay? We can't be the source of that. We're to strive to live at peace with everyone. We might not succeed, but as far as it depends on us, it shouldn't be our fault. While striving for peace, we're also called to strive for holiness. This is a command, of course, that we see all over the scriptures. We are called to be holy as God is holy. And that is what we saw earlier as part of the goal of discipline in verse 10. That discipline is for our good, that we might share in his holiness. This call is serious, and it's what we invite the Lord to reveal to us as we invite him to reveal our hearts. I regularly use the wording... Uh, that you find at the close of Psalm 139, which says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And that prayer is an invitation to say, God, look in my heart, and help me see what I don't naturally see. I don't naturally see all the ways that I'm rebelling against you. I need you to help me see that. It's fighting for holiness, is essential for us. Yes, Jesus secured our righteousness before God. Our righteous standing before God has been secured through Christ and his death on the cross. But our Christian life is a process of growing in that holiness, in and through his power. So we're to strive for peace, and we're to strive for holiness. Another issue the author brings up is having the potential to trip them up on the path is the development of a root of bitterness. Now, I initially thought that might be referring to a bitter attitude that might come from the circumstances of discipline uh, that we read about in the beginning of our passage. And that's possible. uh, But some further study led me to a different conclusion. See, for the Hebrews, a plant that was bitter uh, was a poisonous plant. It was a deadly plant. And this verse seems to be referencing Deuteronomy twenty nine eighteen and following. Let me read that to you, and that'll, I think, give us some insight for our passage. In that passage, it says, Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I'll be safe, though I walk through the stubbornness in my own heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. So the Deuteronomy passage is warning them against turning away to other gods, abandoning God and going and following other gods. And specifically, this root of bitterness is the attitude of saying, oh, well, I'm I'm, I'm a part of the Jewish nation. I'll certainly be safe. I'll be fine. This fits perfectly with the thread of the warnings all throughout the book of Hebrews that urge us against presuming our spiritual safety just because we're around the church or because of some confession that we made in our past and presuming our salvation without Perseverance. So a root of bitterness could be any sin that produces poisonous fruit but I think particularly it seems to be pointing towards sin that promotes a presumption of salvation without perseverance. And that sort of attitude may have been what would lead Esau to sell his birthright for a single meal. I'm I'm an Israelite, I'm safe. Doesn't really matter. Obviously, he was hungry. I mean, he did that because he was hungry, but that's a really high price to pay, even if you're ravenous. The beginning of verse 14, as it leads up to talking about Esau, it says, um, see that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. It's a tricky passage to, to understand exactly what it's saying here, because it might be saying See that no one is sexually immoral or unhealthy like Esau, saying that he's both of those things. Or it might be saying, See that no one is sexually immoral, comma, or unhealthy or unholy like Esau. We don't really know which it's saying. The Bible nowhere references, in other, any other place at least, any sexual immorality in Esau's life. Though interestingly, there is a long tradition in Jewish scholarship of his being sexually immoral. And it's not like it would surprise us, right? I mean, if he couldn't control his hunger, I'm guessing he might not have been in control of some of his other bodily appetites, okay? So it wouldn't surprise us. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter if it's saying Esau was sexually immoral or not, because it's a call for us to not be sexually immoral. So it doesn't really affect the implications for us, whether it's referencing him or not. And about that, I want to be really straightforward and clear. If you're involved in sexual immorality of any kind, don't wait. Start dealing with it today. It's serious. Of all the things that our author could have listed out, he chooses this one. I want to challenge you with two steps that you should take. The first thing would be to confess it to God and talk to Him about what's going on in your life and be real. Second thing I'll challenge you to do is to bring it into the light by confessing it to someone who will help you. Talk about it. Tell them what's going on. Be real. Don't hide it. If you're in an MC or a small group on campus, talk to your leader. If you don't have that person to talk to, Find a trusted, mature friend who cares about your walk with God and tell them. You can get in contact with John or Pat or Jason or I if you need to. I'm serious when I say do it today. Don't put it off. If the Lord is convicting you of sin, deal with it. Don't harden your heart by saying, oh, I'll get around to that later. And that's true whether it's sexual sin or any other sin, but our passage nails in on that one and says, hey, don't fall into this. I've been working with college students for 20 years and it doesn't surprise me that he would choose this to deal with because, man, sexual sin is poison and it's, it's ever-present and it's around and it, it just eats you up. And the most helpful thing that I've ever seen in helping people get free from sexual sin is bring it into the light with people you can trust. This morning's passage calls us to two things. It says, make straight paths for your feet by eliminating the sins that will trip you up. If you've ever watched a, a golfer on the green, uh, and for those of you who don't, no golf on the green is when you're putting and you're trying to get it in the hole when you're really pretty close. You may have noticed them uh, going along the path that he wants the ball to take and picking up even little pieces of leaves or, or blades of grass that seem to be out of place for him. What he's trying to do, or what she's trying to do, is trying to make a straight path for the ball so that nothing would derail the ball from its target. We need that same kind of diligence in our lives. We need to be eliminating sin that would derail us from our target. It's so much more important than a golf ball getting in a little hole. And recognize that because the Lord loves you, He will bring discipline into your life. Maybe that discipline is a call to repentance, because of some specific sin, or it might simply be a hardship that he will use to produce greater maturity. I love the way the book of Proverbs says this in Proverbs 12.1. It says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. So yeah, don't be stupid. That's not even a weird translation. That's ESV. In all seriousness, though, if God is disciplining you, remember, it is out of love and it is for your good. And so we need to receive it as such. So look for the Lord's presence and hand in difficulty and persist in obedience. Let me pray. God, there are many things in life that are very, very hard. Some of them will be corrective discipline in our life to call us to repent and to turn away from sin and others will simply be you using whatever hardship comes into our life to produce godliness in us. God, help us to remember even in the hard parts, that it's out of love and for our good. God, I pray that we would be a people who clear a straight path before us. I pray even today, if there's sins that are coming to mind in this room, that we would begin the process of dealing with it today. Let us be a holy people, striving for peace, striving for holiness, and laying aside every sin that would encumber us from running and finishing this race well. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.